Section 31 of The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Adrian Stevens. The Art of Music, Volume 2, Classicism and Romanticism by the National Society of Music. Neo-Romanticism, Johannes Brahms and César Franck. Part 1. 1. In the lifetime of Beethoven, tendencies became evident in music, which, during the 19th century, developed ordinarily both rapidly and far, and brought about new forms and an almost wholly new art of orchestration. Music underwent transformations parallel to those which altered the face of all the arts and even of philosophy and which were closely dependent on the general, political, social and aesthetic forces set loose throughout Europe by the French Revolution. In the music of Beethoven himself, many of these alterations are suggested, foreshadowed, actually anticipated. The last pianoforte sonatas, the Mass in D, the Ninth Symphony and the last string quartets were all coloured by an intense subjectivity. The form was free and strange. They were, and are, today, incomprehensible without deep study. They are not objectively evident. They are dim and trackless realms of music, hinting at infinite discoveries and possibilities. They were not models, not types for his successors to imitate, but gospels of freedom and messages from remote valleys and mountains. They cast a light over distances yet to be attained. At the same time, they were the expression of his own soul, profoundly personal and mystical. We need not, however, look here for traces of the French Revolution nor the signs of the times. This is not proud and conscious glorification of the individual, nor the confident expression of a mood at once relaxed and self-asserted. This is the expression of a man who was first cut off from the world, who was forced within himself, so to speak, by illness, by loneliness, by complete deafness, whose heart and soul were imprisoned in an aloofness, who could find inspiration but in the mystery and power of his own being. What he brought forth from such heights and depths was to be infinitely suggestive to musicians of a later age. During the last half-dozen years of Beethoven's life, two younger men, strongly affected by the new era of freedom, were moulding and colouring music in other ways. Schubert, fired by the poetry of the German romanticists, was pouring out songs full of freshness and the new spirit, expressing in music the wildness of storm and night, the gruesome forest rider, the fairy whisperings of the brook, the still sadness of frosty winter. Under his hands, the symphony became fanciful, soft, and poetical. He filled it with enchanting melody, with the warm-blooded life of folk songs and native rhythm, veiled it in shifting harmonies. Beside him, reckless Weber, full of German fairy tales, of legends of chivalry, sensitive to tone colour, was writing operas dear to the people, part songs for men loyal to Germany, adorning legend and ballad with splendid colours of sound. Schubert had little grasp of form, which is order in music. Weber 
had hardly to concern himself with it, since his music was, so to speak, the draperies of a form of the drama. For each, poetry and legend was the inspiration, romantic poetry and wild legend, essentially Teutonic for each, rapture and colour was the ideal. So it was at the death of Beethoven. Weber was already dead. Schubert had but a year to live. On the one hand, Beethoven the mystic, unfathomed, infinitely suggestive. On the other, Schubert and Weber, the inspired rhapsodist, the genial colourist, prototypes of much to come. On every hand were imminent needs, unexplored possibilities. In the amazingly short space of twenty-five years, there grew up from these seeds a new music, most firmly rooted in Schubert and Weber, at times fed by the spirit of Beethoven. The rhapsodist gloried in his mood, the colorist painted gorgeous panoramas. There were poets in music on the one hand and painters in music on the other. The question of form and design, the most vital for music, if not for all the arts, has been met in many ways. The poets have limited themselves, or at any rate have found their best and most characteristic expression in small forms. They publish long cycles made up of short pieces, often, as in the case of Schumann's Papillon, Carnival, or Chrysleriana, the short pieces are more or less closely held together in their relationship to one fanciful central idea. They are scenes at a dress ball, comments and impressions of two or three individuals at a fete, various expressions in music of different aspects of a man's character, or they may have no unity as in the case of Chopin's preludes, studies, sets of mazurkas, or Mendelssohn's songs without words, or Schumann's bunte blatter. The painters in music have devised new forms. They prefer to paint pictures of action. They become narrative painters in music. The mighty Berlioz paints progressive scenes from a man's life. Liszt gives us the battle between paganism and Christianity in a series of pictures, the whole of life in its progress toward death, the dreams, the torture, and the ultimate triumph of Mazeppa, of Tasso. They have acquired overpowering skill with the brush and palette. They write for tremendous orchestras. Their scores are brilliant, often blinding. Their narratives move on with great rush. We are familiar with the story. Follow it in the music. We know the guise in music of the characters which enact it. They're constantly before us, moving on, rarely reminiscent. The bands of strict form break before the armies of characters, of ideas, of events, and we need no balance, for the story holds us and we are not upset. But these painters, and we in their suite, are less thrilled by the freedom of their poem and by the stride of their narrative than bewitched and fired by the gorgeousness of the colours which they employ with bold and masterly hand. We shall look relatively in vain for such colours in the music of the poets. They are lyricists, they express moods in music, and each little piece partakes of the colour of the mood which it enfolds, is in general delicate and monochrome. 
the poets are essentially composers for the pianoforte. They have chosen the instrument suitable for the home and for intimate surroundings, and their choice bars the brilliancy of colour from their now exquisite, now passionate and profoundly moving art. They are musicians of the spirit and the mood, meditative, genuine, passionate, tearful and gay by turn. The others are musicians of the senses and the act, dramatists, tawdry charlatans or magnificently glorious spokesmen, leaders, challengers, who speak with the resonance of trumpets and seduce with the honey of soft music. Now the poets are descended from Schubert and the painters from Weber. Both are unwavering in their allegiance to Beethoven, but the spirit of Beethoven has touched them little. The poets, more than the painters, are akin to him, but they lack his breadth and power. The painters have something of his daring strength, but they stand over against him, are not in line with him. Such is the condition of music only twenty-five years after the death of him whom all, save Chopin, who worshipped Mozart, hailed as supreme master. In September 1853, Brahms came to Schumann, then conductor at Dusseldorf on the Rhine, provided with a letter of introduction from Joseph Joachim, the renowned violinist, but two years his senior. Brahms was at that time just over twenty years of age. He brought with him manuscripts of his own composing and played for Schumann. A short while before, he had played the same things for Liszt at Weimar. Of his three weeks' stay as Liszt's guest, very bitter accounts have been written. If Brahms was tired and fell asleep while Liszt was playing to him, if Liszt was merely seeking to impose himself upon the young musician, when he played that young man's scherzo at sight from manuscript and altered it, well and good, Brahms was, at any rate, thanks in this case too to Joachim, received at the throne room of the painters in music, and nothing came of it. He departed the richer by an elegant cigar case, gift from his host, and in later years still spoke of Liszt's unique, incomparable and inimitable playing. But in the throne room of the poets he was hailed with unbounded rejoicing. Schumann took again in his gifted hand the pen so long idle, and wrote the article for the new journal of music, which proclaimed the advent of the true successor of Beethoven. It was a daring prophecy, but it had a tremendous effect upon Brahms and upon his career, for it was a gauge thrown to him he could not neglect, and though it at once created an opposition, vehement and long-standing, it screwed his best and most genuine efforts to the sticking place. Never through the rest of his life did he relax the self-imposed struggle to make himself worthy of Schumann's confidence and hope. Meanwhile, among the painters, directly in the line from Weber, another man had come to the fore, a colossal genius such as perhaps the world had never seen before, nor is like to see again. Richard Wagner, at that time just twice the age of Brahms, was in exile at Zurich. He had written Reinzi, The Flying Dutchman, Tannhauser and Lohengrin. All had been performed. The libretto of The Ring was done, 
and the music to Rheingold composed and orchestrated. Schumann disapproved. It is hard to understand why he, so recklessly generous, so willing to see the best in the music of all the younger school, the ardent supporter of Berlioz, should have turned away from Wagner. One must suspect a touch of personal aversion. He was not alone. No man ever had fiercer battle to wage than Wagner, nor did any man ever bring to battle a more indomitable courage and will. Liszt was his staunch supporter, and to Liszt, too, both Schumann and his wife had aversion, easier to understand than their aversion to Wagner. For Liszt, the virtuoso, was made of gold and tinsel. Liszt, the composer, was made so in part, but Wagner, the musician, was incomparably great, that is to say, his powers were colossal and unlike those of any other, and therefore not to be compared. That Schumann failed to recognise this comes with something of a shock to those who have been amazed at the keenness of his perception, and yet more to those who have rejoiced to find in the musician the nobility and generosity of a great-hearted man. It is obvious that the divergence between poets and painters had by this time become too wide for his unselfish, sympathetic nature to bridge, and thus, when Brahms, a young man of twenty, was launched into the world of music, he found musicians divided into two camps, between which the hostility was to grow ever more bitter. Liszt at Weimar, Schumann at Dusseldorf, were the rallying points for the opposing sides, but within a year Schumann's mind failed. The standard was forced upon Brahms, and Liszt gave himself up to Wagner. It was almost inevitable that the great part of the world of music should be won over by Wagner. One by one, the poets seceded, gave way to the influence of Wagner's marvellous power, an influence which Clara Schumann never ceased to deplore. The result was that Brahms was regarded, outside the circle of a few powerful friends, as reactionary. He led, so to speak, a negative existence in music. He was cried down for what he was not, not for what he was. There is no reason to suppose that Brahms suffered thereby. The sale of his compositions constantly increased, and after the first few probationary years, he never lacked a good income from them. Still, perhaps the majority of musicians were blinded by the controversy to the positive, assertive, progressive elements in Brahms's music. On the other hand, the adherents of Brahms, the Brahmins, as they have been not inaptly called, retaliated by more or less shameful attacks upon Wagner, which later quite justly fell back upon their own heads, to their merited humiliation. They failed to see in him anything but a smasher of tradition. They closed their eyes to his mighty power of construction. In the course of time, Wagner's triumph was overwhelming. He remained the successful innovator, and Brahms the follower of ancient tradition. 2. The life of Brahms offers little that is striking or unusual. He was born in Hamburg, the northern city by the sea, on the 7th of May 1833, of relatively humble parents. His father was a double bass player in a theatre orchestra, 
His mother, many years older than his father and more or less a cripple, seems to have had deep love for reading and a remarkable memory to retain what she had read. In his earliest childhood, Brahms commenced to acquire a knowledge of poetry from his mother, which showed all through his later life in the choice of poems he made for his songs. His ability to play the piano was so evident that his father hoped to send him as a child wonder to tour the United States, from which fate, however, he was saved by the firmness of one of his teachers. Twice, in November 1847, he appeared with others in public, playing conventional showpieces of the Facteur of Talberg, but in the next year he gave a recital of his own, at which he played Bach, a point of which Kalbeck makes a trifle too much. The income of the father was very small, and Brahms was not an overwhelming success as a concert pianist. To earn a little money, therefore, he used to play for dancing in taverns along the waterfront, forgetful, we are told, of the rollicking sailors absorbed in books upon the desk of the piano before him. His early life was not an easy one. It helped to mould him, however, and brought out his enormous perseverance and strength of will. These early days of hardship were never forgotten. He believed they had helped rather than hindered him, a belief which, it must be admitted, is refreshingly manly in contrast to the wail of despised genius so often ringing in the ears of one who reads the lives of the great musicians as they have been penned by their later worshippers. Not long before he died, being occupied with the question of his will and the disposal of his money, he asked his friend, the Swiss writer J.V. Vidman, for advice. Vidman suggested that he establish a fund for the support and aid of struggling young musicians, to which Brahms replied that the genius of such, if it were worth anything, would find its own support and be the stronger for the struggle. The attitude is very characteristic. Occasional visitors to Hamburg had a strong influence upon the youth. Such were Joachim and Robert and Clara Schumann, though he did not then meet the latter. At the age of 19, having already composed the E-flat minor scherzo, the F-sharp minor and C major sonatas, and numerous songs, he went forth on a concert tour with the bohemian violinist Remenyi. On this tour, he again came in touch with Joachim, who furnished him with letters to Liszt at Weimar and the Schumanns at Dusseldorf. Of his stay at Weimar, mention has already been made. At Dusseldorf, he was received at once into the heart of the family. In striking contrast with the gruffness of later years is the description given by Albert Dietrich of the young man come out of the north to the home of the Schumanns. Quote, the appearance, as original as interesting, of the youthful, almost boyish-looking musician, with his high-pitched voice and his long, fair hair, made a most attractive impression upon me. I was particularly struck by the characteristic energy of the mouth and serious depths in his blue eyes. End quote. One evening, Brahms was asked to play. He played a toccata of Bach and his own scherzo in E-flat minor, quote, with wonderful power and mastery, bending his head down over the keys and, as was his wont in his excitement, humming the melody aloud as he played. 
he modestly deprecated the torrent of praise with which his performance was greeted. Everyone marvelled at his remarkable talent, and, above all, we young musicians were unanimous in our enthusiastic admiration of the supremely artistic qualities of his playing. At times, so powerful, or, when occasion demanded it, so exquisitely tender, but always full of character. Soon after, there was an excursion to the Grafenberg. Brahms was one of the party, and showed himself there in all the amiable freshness and innocence of youth. The young artist was of vigorous physique. Even the severest mental work hardly seemed an exertion to him. He could sleep soundly at any hour of the day if he wished to do so. In intercourse with his fellows, he was lively, often even exuberant in spirits, occasionally blunt and full of wild freaks. With the boisterousness of youth, he would run up the stairs, knock at my door with both fists, and without awaiting a reply, burst into the room. He tried to lower his strikingly high-pitched voice by speaking hoarsely, which gave it an unpleasant sound. End quote. All accounts of the young Brahms lay emphasis on his lovableness, his exuberant good spirits, his shining good health, and his physical vitality. Clara Schumann wrote in her diary, quote, I found a nice stanza in a poem of Bodenstedt's, which is just the motto for Johannes. In winter I sing as my glass I drain, for joy that the spring is drawing near, and when the spring comes I drink again, for joy that at last it is really here. End quote. Clara, too, admired his playing, and she was competent to judge. Quote, I always listened to him with fresh admiration, end quote, she wrote. Quote, I like to watch him while he plays. His face has a noble expression always, but when he plays, it becomes even more exalted, and at the same time, he always plays quietly. That is, his movements are always beautiful, not like Liszt's and others, end quote. He was always devoted to Schubert, and she remarked that he played Schubert wonderfully. Later in life, his playing became careless and loud. Not half a year after Brahms was received at Dusseldorf, Schumann's mind gave way. In February 1854, he attempted suicide, and immediately after, it became necessary to send him to a private sanatorium at Endenich. For two years longer he lived. They were years of anguish for his wife, during which Brahms was her unfailing refuge and support. She wrote in her diary that her children might read in after years what now is made known to the world. Quote, then came Johannes Brahms. Your father loved and admired him, as he did no man except Joachim. He came, like a true comrade, to share all my sorrow, he strengthened the heart that threatened to break. He uplifted my mind. He cheered my spirits whenever and wherever he could. In short, he was, in the fullest sense of the word, my friend. End quote. Brahms was profoundly affected by the suffering he witnessed and by the personal grief at the loss of a friend who had meant so much to him. The hearty, boisterous gaiety 
such as he poured into parts of his youthful compositions, into the scherzo of the F minor sonata, for instance, and into the finale of the C major, never again found unqualified expression in his music. His character was set and hardened. From then on, he locked his emotions within himself. Little by little, he became harsh, rejected, often roughly, kindness and praise, made himself a coat of iron, and shut his nature from the world. Ruthlessly outspoken and direct, seemingly heedless of the sensibilities of those who loved him dearly and whom he dearly loved, he presents only a proud, fierce defiance to grief, to misfortune, even to life itself. What such self-discipline cost him, only his music expresses. Three of his gloomiest and most austere works come first into his mind during the horror of Schumann's illness. The D minor concerto for the piano, the first movement of the C minor quartet, and the first movement of the C minor symphony. Meanwhile, he was earning a precarious living by giving concerts here and there, not always with success, and he had begun a relentlessly severe course of self-training in his art. Here, Joachim and he were mutually helpful to each other. Every week, he would send the other exercises in music, fragments of compositions, expecting in return frank and merciless criticism. In the fall of 1859, he accepted a position at Detmold as pianist and leader of the chorus. A small orchestra was at his service, which offered him opportunity to study instrumental effects, especially wind instruments, and for which he wrote the two serenades in A and in D major. Likewise, he profited by his association with the chorus and laid at Detmold the foundation for his technique in writing for voices, which has very rarely been equalled. Duties in this new position occupied him only during the musical season, from September to December. At other times, he played in concert or went back to his home in Hamburg. At one concert in Leipzig in 1859, he was actually hissed, either because his own concerto, which he played, or his manner of playing it, was offensive. The critics were viciously hostile. Brahms took the defeat manfully, evidently ranked it as he did his days of playing for the Hamburg sailors, among the experiences which were in the long run stimulating. At Hamburg, he organised a chorus of women's voices, for which many of his loveliest works were then and subsequently composed. In the chorus was a young Viennese lady from whom, according to Kalbeck, he first heard Viennese folk music. With Vienna henceforth in mind, he continued in his work at Detmold until 1862, when he broke away from North Germany and went to establish himself in the land of his desire. He came before the public first as a pianist, later as a composer. For a year, he was conductor of the Sing Academy. Afterward, he never held an office except during the three years 1872 to 1875, when he was conductor of the Gesellschaft der Musikfreund. The death of his mother in 1867 aggravated his tendency to forbidding self-discipline. 
the resulting music was the German Requiem, which even those who cannot sympathise with his music in general have willingly granted to be one of the great masterpieces of music. As it was first performed at a concert of the Gesellschaft der Musikfreund in Vienna in April 1867, it consisted of only three numbers. To these he later added four, and in this form it was performed on Good Friday, April 10, 1868, in Bremen. Clara Schumann, who was present, wrote in her diary that she had been more moved by it than by any other sacred music she had ever heard. It established Brahms's reputation as a composer, a reputation which steadily grew among conservatives. A group of distinguished critics, musicians, and men of unusual intellectual gifts gathered about him in Vienna. Among them were Dr. Theodore Billroth, the famous surgeon, probably his most intimate friend, Edward Hanslick and Max Kalbeck among the critics, K. Goldmark and Johann Strauss among the musicians. Joachim was a lifelong friend. Von Bulow and Fritz Simrock, the publisher, were staunch admirers, and in Dvorak he later took a deep interest. Journeys to Italy and to Switzerland took him from Vienna for some time every year, and he often spent part of the summer with Clara Schumann at various German watering places. A few works were inspired by unusual events, such as the Song of Triumph to celebrate the victory of the German armies in the war against France, and the Academic Festival Overture, composed in gratitude to the University at Breslau, which conferred upon him the degree of Doctor of Philosophy. A similar degree was offered by the University of Cambridge, which Brahms was forced to refuse because he was unwilling to undertake the voyage to England. He was an omnivorous reader and an enthusiastic amateur of art. Regular in his habits, a stubborn and untiring worker, he composed almost unceasingly to the time of his last illness and death in April 1897. The great works for the orchestra comprise Variations on a Theme of Haydn's, the Academic Festival Overture and the Tragic Overture, four great symphonies, the Second Concerto for Piano and Orchestra, the Concerto for Violin and Orchestra, and a Concerto for Violin and Violoncello. The great choral works are the Requiem, the Song of Triumph and the Song of Destiny, a cantata, Rinaldo, and a great number of songs. Besides these, there are many sets of works for the piano, all in short forms, generally called caprices or intermezzi, and several sets of variations, one on a theme of Paganini, one on a theme of Handel, sonatas for piano and violin, and piano and violoncello, the magnificent quintet in F minor for piano and strings, sonatas for clarinet and piano, string quartets, piano quartets, and trios. End of section 31